My name is Jacob Stoops. And I'm Jeff Luella. And you're listening to the Page Two Podcast. This is our podcast about the people of the SEO industry. We chronicle the real life stories, experiences, challenges, and advice from some of the most amazing people in the business. This episode, we chat with Jason White, Director of SEO at PMG, a digital marketing agency based in Fort Worth, Texas, but with offices in Austin, Dallas, New York, and London. We discuss his passion for cycling and how he went from working at a bike shop to SEO. We cover his time both in-house and at agencies, why he believes his best fit is within the agency environment, doing SEO on eBay, local search, being a jack-of-all-trades, and so much more. In the news, we talk about a few studies on keyword research from Brian Dean of Backlinko and Dan Liebson of Local SEO Guide and how accurate the search volumes of various SEO tools may or may not be, and the new review snippets report in Google Search Console. Finally, we have a deep dive into biggest SEO challenges. To paraphrase Frank Costanza of Seinfeld, we got a lot of problems, and now you're going to hear about them. So get your popcorn ready as we tell Jason's SEO story and have another great roundtable discussion. Hey everybody, this is Jacob Stoops and we are here with episode 41 of the Page 2 podcast. Uh, and once again, my co-host is here, Mr. Jeff Luella. Jeff, how's it going? Hey, it's going good. How's it going with you? You know the answer to that. It's going it's going quite quite well. Amazing. Another fun day living in Ohio and uh, the temperature outside today is a balmy high of 28, which is the coldest day we've had in about a year, uh, which uh, for you uh, Southern folks, you <laughs> don't know much about that. Although, Jeff, you're from Philly, right? So you know yeah, that. so it's all. But down here in Atlanta now, it's a balmy 51. <laughs> um, you know, we, we did hit the 30s last night, so <laughs> but it's back up. Canceled, canceled all the school. Uh, we had two inches of snow, um, which melted by noon. So the kids were upset. <laughs> so the funny thing about this is I, I led this on the path and I feel like the weather is like the, uh, what is it? Like the worst bastion of small talk. And here, here right. we're talking about <laughs> so making small talk, bad small talk. Anyways, so <laughs> let's get moving. So we have a guest. We have a guest once again, and that guest's name is Mr. Jason White. Jason, how's it going? Good morning. Good morning. It was uh, a balmy 28 degrees here in uh, Fort Worth, Texas this morning. So Wait, for- wow. 28 degrees in Fort Worth, Texas? Yeah. Yeah. We ha- we, uh, my wife and I just got some fruit trees, and uh, we-, we planted them in pots, and I had to bring them all in last night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. You got to cover that up. No frost. Exactly. I have a lemon tree that I've been keeping in the garage with like a light over top of it. Is that what you use to make your famous Luella cello, lemon cello? No, that is, uh, that is the goal that I'll be making my own lemons for lemon cello. So, but now I use Costco. We should sell <laughs> Jeff's, uh, lemon cello on our, on our site. What do you think? Oh yeah. Think the audience uh, I would just need a federal license to be able to sell it, but. <laughs> the, the better question is what percentage of our audience 
not only drinks actively, but drinks while they're listening to us talk about SEO. Well, one right here. There Just you kidding. go. <laughs> Jeff, it's like 11 a.m. <laughs> break. So noon somewhere. One thing we were talking about. So Jason, you're the you're, um, director of SEO at PMG, correct? Correct. Correct. I got the title right. Look, we do our homework. Um, one thing we were talking about uh, before the episode that I thought was funny before we jumped on was uh, Jason's uh, Twitter picture and uh, and the actual video feed of him. It actually took me by surprise because he has a very fine mustache. Uh, and I thought that that would be really funny to bring up uh, because it's a really awesome mustache. Jason, tell us about your mustache. Let's I, I talk about that. that. I'm, I'm going to have to like tweet out a picture or something now. It's been uh, quite the trending topic in my life or like uh, it's turned into like an FAQ question. Um, really like everybody's just witnessing Jason with some self-discovery here uh, <laughs> in the terms of, of facial hair and what I'm able to achieve. I don't really know where it's going yet. Um, you know, Movember was a learning experience for me. I got rid of it and found out my wife kind of appreciated it. So um, I grew it back and I'm having fun. Uh, originally, I'm from upstate New York. And uh, before moving to Texas, I lived in Florida for about three years. So uh, when I got my Texas license, like I'm an actual Texan. And so I'm, I'm really embracing the persona. Yeah, pretty soon you're going to have to to start wearing the uh, the cowboy boots and the what is it the is it the fire is it the nine gallon hat ten gallon hat it's the something gallon hat the big big hat yeah my Georgia license my Georgia license I have a giant beard and I figured it just is my perception of Georgia when I moved down here was just like we're all going to say y'all and you know y'all I stay I say y'all all the time now because I'm allowed to since I live yeah. in Georgia. But uh, Atlanta is not the South. I don't think like that's not the South that I was expecting. It is very yeah. well. I mean, let's let's be real. Like if we're talking about facial facial hair, like your hair, it's just migrated from your head to to the lower. Totally, part. I I agree. South with the winter too. I have a little girl on my streets like you're bald, and I'm like, listen, <laughs> I got more hair on my face than you have all over. So <laughs> Ooh, that got weird. Yeah. Oh yeah. True. Is that the gotta Lord. call that out? Yeah, so the funny, <laughs> thing about, the funny thing about facial hair uh, that we were talking about is, Jason, uh, Jason, I think you told us, I don't know if you maybe you just mentioned it or not, and I just completely blanked out, but uh, I, I, too, have trouble growing facial hair, and, my, and I get that trouble from my, from my dad. So I'm very envious of people like Jeff that can grow these full beards uh, in probably like, I don't know how long it takes you to grow a full beard, but it's probably a, a significantly short time frame. And here I am like a month in and I can barely grow like a, a, an 18-year-old looking goatee. Uh, and and I'm, I'm very proud of my goatee, but I'm a 37-year-old man who looks like I look like I'm a 14-year-old trying to grow trying to grow any type of facial hair, and it just looks really really bad. But now I'm at the point where if I shave it, it makes me look like I'm about nine. So I'm I think for the rest of my life stuck in this really weird, awkward in between facial hair phase because it just grows in uh, not very thick and way too patchy. And um, I personally blame my blame my dad. It's all his fault. I got his genes. I think they sell like two days for your face. It's my dad's opposite. Like he can grow facial hair. Like it's no, nobody's problem. Like he's always had like this awesome. massive handlebar mustache on his face and stuff. So it's always been awesome. like 
my dream to be able to grow that. But like similar to like you, like I shave maybe once every 10 days and like it's only because it's like looking really scraggly and you can see all the bare spots where it's not growing in. Uh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty into the mustache for right now. Yeah. And awesome. I'm, uh, it's, people like my, my father-in-law, I'm super envious of my father-in-law. He's uh, uh, very Italian and I'm not trying to stereotype, but he's, he's very Italian. You like his last name is Pichano. You have to say his last name while like using your hands. It's one of those very, very cool Italian names. And uh, he's a very hairy man. Uh, so he has no, like he doesn't have the same troubles that I have with respect to growing, uh, growing facial hair. And, and I've always known him to have a beard and a mustache, but I've heard many stories about the one time that he did try to shave off his beard and mustache and was completely berated by his wife, now my, my mother-in-law. So he's actually not allowed. So he's got completely different problems than, than I have in terms of if he ever wanted to take off his facial hair he's not allowed because his wife told him so <laughs> how long do you think you have to like how long in the growing cycle do you have before you're like stuck with it for life are you are you asking me yeah like if i leave this thing on for a year like am i is that it like i gotta have it for the next like five to ten years or like do i refresh it every couple of months i mean honestly it's probably whatever your wife tells you I mean, happy wife happy life yeah. right Smart, smart. <laughs> you're a beard man you know more about this than we do yeah no i've been uh i've gone from goatee to beard to goatee to beard it's tough when you're bald because it's like i gotta fade up into baldness so <laughs> it's uh <laughs> so the longer the beard the more you know and then you're like echoing on like you know i i, I do want to embrace my hillbilly nature that i'm down here now so it's i grow it a little bit bigger <laughs> so Wow. Okay. Jeff, yeah. Jeff on Jeff on here calling people hillbillies. I'm calling all Italian oh, yeah. hairy people. We're, <laughs> we're going to get in trouble. Uh, anyway, so uh, if you came here, uh, you probably didn't come here to listen to us talk about the weather or talk about beards. You probably came here to listen to us talk about SEO. So let's let's talk SEO, guys. Let's let's jump into it. And before we before we start, before we kind of grill Jason uh, a little bit. Um, if you're a first-time listener, uh, and we have a growing audience, which is really awesome. It's, um, it, it's really cool, and, and we're very appreciative of that. But we recognize that because we are a niche podcast, uh, there, are, there is a chance that even though this is our 41st episode, that you might be a first-time listener. And that's totally awesome. Uh, I like to say that we've been kind of bumping into people organically. Uh, which means that somebody, one, you know, one person heard from another who heard from another. And, and uh, this thing is very grassroots and, and spreading very organically. And we like it that way. That's totally fine. Um, but as it stands in season two, this may change in the future. But as it stands in season two, every episode is, is a, a three-legged stool. I think I like the way Ian, Ian uh, uh, described it. He, in, in that episode with Ian Howells, we, we talked about a three-legged stool. And I believe that was about Traffic Think Tank, but I'm, I'm, I'm stealing it. Uh, as SEOs tend to, tend to do, I'm stealing it. Uh, and I've been using that to describe our podcast uh, for the last couple of episodes. So essentially, the first leg of the stool is the core of the podcast. It is the 
uh, the background of the people that we interview because none of us get into SEO uh, on purpose, it seems like, unless you're really new to the industry. Um, even then, uh, it, it is usually not on purpose. Most of us just kind of fall into it. And those stories and the backgrounds of what people did before they were SEOs incredibly, incredibly interesting. And we've had some really, really diverse backgrounds. And not only that, but talking about the real challenges uh, and the day-to-day of what it's like to be in the SEO grind um, and just everything related to, SE- related to SEO and the, um, the idea of just what it's like to go through the day-to-day quote-unquote battles. Um, I almost liken this podcast to the listener being the fly on the wall while two or three SEOs in a room talk shop, and that's kind of what you'll hear. Um, The second leg of the stool is we talk about the news of the day, and it has basically become a forum for Jeff describing the news and me yelling yelling about the news and complaining uh, about various things. Uh, And hopefully we won't complain (laughs) complain today. We've got some we've got some good news. Um, uh, Well, actually, I'll say it's a bit of a slow news week, but we've got some interesting news about some new search console reports. And we're going to talk a little bit about keyword research data and how accurate it might be. Uh, So definitely some good conversation that's going to occur there. And then the deep dive, which is the third leg of the stool, uh, is going to be towards the latter part of the episode. So if you're still around, you're going to hear us deep dive today on some of the biggest challenges that SEOs face. And honestly, that could probably be an entire episode uh, in and of itself, but we're going to attempt to dive into uh, a couple of really big challenges that we feel like that we face on a day-to-day basis. Uh, And we're going to hopefully try to dive into maybe some solutions to addressing those challenges so that it isn't just a big complaining fest, uh, which sometimes, sometimes we SEOs like to complain about things. We're going to try to maybe bring solutions to the things that we're uh, complaining about nah, maybe we'll don't complain. Some, maybe we won't maybe we'll help some people maybe we won't we'll see anyways that is enough of me talking i want to hear more of jason talking so jason um tell us about yourself and tell us about your background how did you uh how did you find seo and what were you doing before um, i think a happy accident is a great way to describe it um i you know, young kid, still in college, I uh, was living in Boston at the time, worked at a bike shop. And uh, January, as you can imagine, is a pretty rough month at a bike shop for sales. And um, there's, you know, the what flats come in that you need to repair cold and icy and just brutal to change out. Um, and so there was this thing called eBay and there was all this uh, excess inventory that we could sell um, that had been sitting around the shop for a long time. It's probably off the books. And I started slinging things on eBay and not even understanding exactly what I was doing. Um, You know, it probably was like a year or two before I discovered there was like a whole industry uh, and a lot of names behind some of the things that I was doing. Um, But, you know, like reading forums and trying to understand how to do a little bit better. But um, my career totally started at eBay selling bike parts. Um, and then I got into the local space a little bit, trying to outrank the other bike shops uh, in Boston um, and map packs and cool things like that. And where did you go from, uh, where did you go from, from there, from your, well, for, first off, I would say, how did you like, how did you start working in a bike shop? 
Um, so I've always been interested in cycling. Um, I've done like different bike tours. Um, I'm originally from upstate New York. And so, um, you know, it kind of was a way one summer I realized that um, I had a bike and a means to get to all these other people's houses and hang out. Um, and so, you know, summertime riding around the, the town that I grew up in, there's a big mountain there, um, a lot of trails and cool things like that. And so I would just kind of get lost in the woods, um, and really kind of fell in love with riding my bike and what that brought me and how it felt. And, uh, I got into racing. I had a really good friend that was like, you know what, you should try racing. And so, um, at like 15, I think my mom brought me to my first, uh, mountain bike race and I won by like seven minutes. And so when you win your first whatever, you like discover something new that you're good at, uh, it's pretty easy to like fall into that. And so um, cycling and, and racing has always been a part of me. Um, I was lucky enough to get recruited to go to a cycling team that was at a college in uh, Nashville. Um, and so I spent a year traveling around the Southeast and racing, sleeping out of a van again, um, doing all kinds of cool dirty hippie things um, on a bike. <laughs> and right before I went to Nashville, uh, I met a girl and she was pretty awesome. She had graduated college already. She was looking for a real job. She got the real job out in Boston. And so um, Nashville was kind of like an interesting place for me. Uh, I clearly remember like going to the grocery store and asking them where the hummus was. And they were like, what's hummus? And so like that was like my first, like I'm not, I'm not in uh, New York anymore. Kind of <laughs> so um, I had like a Saab 900, like I was a total, total uh, Northeast stereotype. Um, but <clears throat> so anyway, girl's really cool. And I chased her out to Boston and um, I needed a job. I needed some way to pay rent and uh, working in a bike shop was a, a good place to go. You get the uh, employee discount on parts and uh, could fuel, fuel the passion and uh, hopefully, you know, go pro and, become Lance Armstrong and, and live the lifestyle. Yeah. So I have a friend, well, I'll, I'll just say an acquaintance because I, I went to high school with this person. We were, we were on, on good terms and he, um, as we've grown up, we, we haven't necessarily like stayed in touch, but I'm friends with him on Facebook and he is, he is way into the, um, to the cycling game as, as well. Uh, and then uh, to connect that to myself, my wife and I were looking for bikes uh, this past summer and there was a, a garage sale right around the, in our neighborhood, right around the corner. And my wife was driving to work one morning, the morning that people were setting up for the garage sale. And she saw that these, uh, that are not our direct neighbors, but people kind of in the neighborhood had, had put some really, really nice bikes out. And she said, these bikes are really cheap and they're basically like brand new like Jake, go, go get them. Um, so I went down there and one of the bikes was a mongoose, which I think is like a really good, uh, brand of cycling bikes. So can you confirm is a mongoose, a really good brand of cycling bike? Because what I will say when I do try to ride it, it hurts my butt riding that because the seat, the seat is different. (laughs) So I don't know, like what is a good, what is a good cycling bike? Um, I mean, a good cycling bike is any bike that you're going to ride. Um, you know, oh, if it, it serves like the purpose and the need of what you want. Okay, um, yeah. Mongoose wouldn't be like my first pick, but okay, right. if it gets you from point A to point B, who cares? I thought I, I, I thought it looked cool. 
I thought growing up Mongoose was like the thing you wanted to have, well, at least when I was growing up. <laughs> and then um, I think it became one of those brands that, you know, got shipped to China and mass produced. But Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's two companies that make 90% of the bikes in the world. Uh, so one brand to another is really just like, hey, it's that assembly line over yeah. there. Wow. Uh, they're, they're all coming out of the same factories. Um, there's big ones in Taiwan and there's big one in China. And, um, you know, I think like Trek and Specialized make some of their carbon bikes in-house. And I know mm-hmm. Trek does it uh, in Wisconsin, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, but other than that, like, you're, you're pretty much getting all the same stuff. The, the funny thing about it is here I'm reading my friend's Facebook and he's like, he's definitely moved on, but I saw him reference Mongoose a couple of times. And then I'm like, Oh man, I got this bike for like $25 and it's like brand new. Oh, what a deal. And now I come to find out it's, it's just, a deal. It's a big win. Well, I mean, in the nineties, they did have a race team too. Uh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it was yeah. anyways. So what is it like to, um, to, to, to sling products on eBay. We have had previously um, somebody that does work on Amazon. And I do find it fascinating, the idea of um, mm-hmm. not just optimizing for a search engine, but optimizing for search within a large site like that. So what is it like doing work on, on Amazon? And what did you learn uh, as you were kind of discovering SEO at the same time? Um, well, I mean, like back in the day, it was really when Amazon was at its peak in popularity. Um, I think they're kind of like a silent killer right now. Like people don't realize how big of a site and how popular it is right now. They account uh, eBay out. But, um, you know, back then I was doing like a lot of like hidden text. I was like adding all the keywords and then making them white. So that like the listing was just like this ridiculously long, like white space. And they they allowed you to do stuff like that. Um, And so like, I didn't realize that some of this stuff was spammy um but it was still kind of wild wild west days you know their algorithms were pretty early um you know they, they were naming them like florida and boston and, and weird things like that um so you know it was an interesting time to learn and to make mistakes um and i think that one of the best things that came out of it was understanding to optimize wherever there was a search box you know to your point you're optimizing to be found, have the listing found on Google search, which is something that's hard to do now. Um, you know, back then you could get actual listings to rank pretty easily or pretty well. Um, and then you're also trying to rank internally to their algorithms and to be found uh, that way. So, um, you know, like being able to play both sides of the equation, I thought was something that's really been impactful to my career um, and just like understanding what's the goal, what are you trying to accomplish, what are you trying to do? and the multiple ways that you can get to that goal. So I, I guess for people that are, are, so do you still do work on, on eBay or, or even on Amazon? No, they actually kicked me off a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> it's like Jeff's Wikipedia career. Yeah. I was kind oh, of yeah. bitter about it. I haven't gone back. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's interesting though. It has come full circle for me. Um, I was able to interview there. For a position that they had, which was like, holy cow. Uh, I kind of felt like the Yankees were calling me uh, and they awesome. wanted me to put me on the roster. So like, yeah. I thought I really appreciated that because like literally like, I cut my teeth in, in eBay. So to be able to, to interview there, I was just amazing. Amazing opportunity. Yeah. I, was at a, I was at a company that got bought by eBay. So then, then broken up and spit out into pieces. So yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's like Jeff's interview at uh, Google. A few yeah. Back, and Jeff was like, it's not Mountain View. I don't think I'm going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, no, they interviewed me and I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. And then at the end, like my whole goal was like, let me get me out the Mountain View so I can like, I just want to go there and, and like, I don't know. And uh, they're like, oh, this is for our Seattle office. And I'm like, Seattle? Google's not in Seattle. It's like, and I think just my, it wasn't like that drastic, but I think they heard the, my tone shift when I was like, "That's not Mountain View." And I looked up, and I looked it up, and it was like an office complex that looks like every other office complex. And I'm like, "That's not like, like where's the slides and the volleyball courts and all that stuff?" And the nap pods. Yeah, nap pods. This was just like an office building. It looks like my office building. <laughs> so. So Jason, um, in looking at your bio, it looks like you've bounced back and forth between a couple of in-house roles, uh, or in it, at least one in-house role and um, some agency roles. So can you talk about, uh, and I'm looking specifically at like Dragon Search, it looks like you spent some time there. It looks like you spent some time with Hertz in-house and, and right now you're, you're at an agency. So you, can you talk a little bit about those experiences? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've been house, in-house twice and I've been agency side twice. Um, and really it started with this like patch company, uh, in Woodstock, New York called Stadry Emblems. And it was like literally the, the stuff that firemen and policemen use on their, uh, uniforms. And so anybody could make patches. Um, it was a really unique experience because I was the jack of all trades. Uh, I had to do email marketing. I had to do, uh, content marketing. I did social media. I did all of the paid management and they had like a pretty sizable paid budget. Um, and then I did SEO as well. And they had a number of brands that fell under this umbrella. And so there was way too much to do, but I became very good at efficient and understanding like what paid data I could use to inform my SEO strategy and vice versa. And so um, after about a year there, I really wanted to go agency side and be, uh, you know, like have relationships with clients and be able to work on a variety of different verticals. And I thought that agency would give me a lot more experience, a lot faster, and that I could get much better at the craft. And so I thought SEO was, was bogus and a bunch of snake oil at the time. And so I was trying to get in uh, to drag and search on the paid team. But the, uh, the lead on the paid side wouldn't return my emails, wouldn't, um, you know, take me, take me for uh, an interview. And so this was like when Twitter was like maybe a year too old. And, um, you know, I realized that I could kind of develop a relationship with the CEO on Twitter and like stalk him a little bit. And so I set up alerts. And anytime he tweeted, if I had something relevant to say or if I had something that was like, worthwhile to respond to, I would just tweet back at him. And over the course of like maybe two months, then he posted a position for SEO. And at that point, like the paid guy wasn't, wasn't listening to me, really wanted to work at his agency. Uh, and so it was like, whatever, SEO is fine. Maybe I can like transfer or something like that. Uh, so I got in there. I thought I totally bombed the first half of the interview. And so I was feeling really down and bad about myself. So they put me in front of the CEO and I started out by like apologizing, being like, hey, man, I'm really sorry. Like, I messed this up. Like, this is what I did. I was like stalking you on Twitter and it sounds a little creepy. But listen, like, I just want to build a relationship. I really want to work here. And so he freaked out because nobody had ever done that before. Um, and he literally like ran out the door and gave me an offer letter uh, right on the spot. And so I started there um, and uh, like quickly, I think within like the first month or two, got my first like client set. 
Um, I was working like New York City real estate. I was doing something else with uh, like shampoo that prevents your hair from turning green, which I didn't know was a thing at the time. Um, and there was like, there was one other account that I had too, but basically like SEO got its teeth in me from there. Uh, I became like uh, an industry writer, uh, you know, written, wrote publications, I was featured in books and stuff like that. Uh, I was able to have some speaking engagements at NYU. Um, and from all of that, I also got invited to, uh, to SMX and started like, you know, becoming more of an industry speaker. Um, and so like Dragon Search was really like an incubator that launched my career. And we had like a couple of pretty big successes. I kind of grew with them from like a regional agency into a more national agency. And we landed a couple of really big accounts. And as those accounts succeeded, we were able to land bigger accounts, which, um, you know, relationships are, have always been key, I think, to the, the SEO industry, especially when you're trying to uh, do like biz dev activities. And so one of the accounts that we had gotten that had become very successful the, um, the leader of that organization had moved on to Hertz and, and had become like a, a VP within the organization. And um, after a couple of weeks of that change, he reached out to me and was like, hey, like, you know, really would like to have you on the team. We have a big SEO need here. I wanted nothing to do with Florida at the time. You know, it's heaven's waiting room. Don't like not not my cup of tea at all. And so somehow I was able to convince him to, um, you know, work with our agency and he, you know, he had indicated they're going to go to a global firm. They're going to go to, you know, one of the holding companies uh, as they rebuild their program. And so I was kind of the stopgap with my boutique agency at Dragon Search. And at, I onboarded that global company. Um, and he called me up again and was like, listen, this is the last time I'm going to ask, like, if you want the opportunity, the opportunity is yours. And so, you know, I had taken a look at a lot of the other leaders in the SEO space and realized that a lot of them have gone agency side and then got in-house and then gone back agency side or gone into their own consulting. And so I felt that like a large scale enterprise brand was really what I needed to round out my resume at that point. And uh, I, you know, I had already seen all the issues with the site, all the issues internally, having worked with them for about six months and uh, thought it was something that you know, I could jump in and affect and, uh, you know, kind of put another uh, feather in my hat, uh, so to speak. And so uh, I had ran Global SEO for Hertz Dollar Thrifty, uh, the car rental brands, and, and lived in Florida for about three years before jumping back agency side about a year ago. So car rental SEO, uh, I, I just know the industry in general is insane. Yeah. Um, just if you, anyone's ever waited at, like after a, a flight to try to get a rental car or even uh, there's been plenty of news reports. And then on top of that, you have all the, you know, Expedias and, and external sites that are out there that are trying to compete against you to sell your own services too, right? Like the Expedia is just, a, I guess, like a hub that that's doing that. Like, what's it like? Like, what are some of the, the things and like challenges that you had in that type of SEO? Because it's it's not your standard, like, you know, e-commerce has their own problems, but I, I am sure like the whole car rental space and flight space or travel space has got to be pretty crazy. Yeah, it, it is pretty crazy because you're going up against those OTAs of the Expedias of the world that have billion dollar budgets, um, you know, and I'm looking at my little like pennies that I have to like rub together and turn into a hundred dollar bill. Um, but like the problems are the same for all of the competitors. You know, these sites are, are pretty massive. Um, there's literally 30,000 locations worldwide. And so I really focused in on location and, 
you know, looked at that as, um, you know, qualifying search or qualified search that had very good intent and did everything that we could to improve our local presence and our local reach. And that was like one of the big focuses that I had early on. Um, you know, with a large scale brand like that, there's a lot of opinions uh, and there's a lot of different desires and needs. And so, you know, really I wanted to try to barnacle SEO onto other big projects that were happening. Um, you know, early on I had a lot of air cover and that really helped because we were able to um, improve a lot of aspects to the website. But as time went on, you know, that air cover disappeared and the, the trends shifted. Um, you know, and the needs of the organization shifted because of that. And so, you know, SEO wasn't quite as important, uh, you know, as when I had first come into the brand. Yeah. I mean, I guess, cause there are, there's so many ways to get to, you know, Hertz or, or, and just to get to a car rental place. Right. So I think there's a, my opinion from the outside, not being in that industry is lots of partnerships, you know, with, with all those brands seems like a way to kind of yeah get a yeah. lot of that traffic and business. I mean, and they have corporate partnerships where, um, you know, they're giving preferred rentals and preferred cars to some of the big organizations in the world. And that's certainly one of the ways that it comes in. Um, mm -hmm. I think the OTAs have definitely changed mindset over the years and people think that they're getting great deals uh, by going to an Expedia and that's, you know, no longer that's the case. case yeah. um, you know, going direct, you're going to get a much better deal than, you know, buying excess inventory off of something else. Um, and like the rental car space is interesting too, because everybody hates rental cars. They've had bad experiences. Yeah. They've heard bad things. They think it's a shady place. Um, you know, they're shysters and it's the last thing that you're going to book in your journey too. And so yeah. that's usually going to be the very last minute thing. Um, and we had like uh, some data points that show that people are actually like booking rentals while they're walking through the terminal of their destination and they're trying to find like who's the closest counter and what's the closest lot. Um, you know, a lot of times loyalty is what drives uh, who's going to get the most points. And I think that's true of a lot of corporate travelers, uh, you know, myself included, one of the benefits of being able to travel is that I can get all these Marriott or Hilton points and then I can, you know, take my family on a weekend trip or go on a, you know, a vacation or something like that. Yeah. And you know, that, that really is the benefit. And so, with those frequent use cases, points are, are really, uh, really, really key here. Yeah, I, I was I went down a YouTube rabbit hole the other day, and um, which I often do because <laughs> I don't watch regular TV anymore. It's it's pretty interesting, um, but I was watching. It was like something on local search. Actually, it was like an investigative journalist. It was more about locksmiths. Um, and how they're like, it's like a shiesty industry. And then it turned the second half of the episode was all about local SEO and like how there was 10,000 locksmiths in Toronto and none of yeah. them were real and things like that. And, and I think that the what next one on the list was all about car rentals and it was a kind of like, you know, cheapo car rental place um, that, you know, you go, you think you're getting a great deal. And then I think, it's kind of how you, you mentioned before how SEO, there's like a lot of bad names in SEO or not getting into it and not knowing anything about it. You can read bad things about like black hat SEOs and things like that. And, and I think the car rental industry is the same. Like I usually go with a big brand like a Hertz or an enterprise because even if I'm paying a little bit more, I feel like I'm, the service is, is better and, and things like that. So um, I don't search for car rentals. I usually just go, to like enterprise or hertz.com and, and, and search that I might search between the two, like on the sites to see which one has a better deal. Right. Um, but, but it's the same time, like I'm not going to cheapo car rentals cause I feel like 
they're going to be the ones that are, you know, oh, there's this little scratch and things like that. So not that it has anything to do with SEO, but I, I feel that that's kind of how maybe a lot of travelers are, are, are checking and not using Expedia. So I, I have a question. So if you're working, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the car rental space, but imagine that you're working in a space that maybe doesn't have uh, a great reputation and you're battling against bigger brands who for whatever reason seem to have more trust just because they are a bigger brand and you're a smaller player. How do you make inroads with with that kind of a situation? You know, it's, there's so many different ways to go about it and so many different ways to do it. Um, I, I do think it is harder for the smaller brands, but there are people that are just looking for amazing deals. And so some of those smaller brands get found on their own anyway. Um, you know, we, yeah. I competed pretty much against the top three other brands that are out there. Um, there was a smaller brand that definitely came in and they had a pretty gnarly SEO team that was like based in Europe. Um, and, and, you know, they were totally eating our cheese because they were a little bit faster, they were more nimble. Um, you know, they had executives that believed in SEO and that were empowering that team. And so, you know, like it really comes down to that empowerment. And I think that if you are an executive at some of one of these organizations and have had success with SEO in the past, you're going to play that card again. And it'll hit because you're empowering and believing and like removing those roadblocks and realize that SEO is kind of that a blanket that is going to go across the organization and it's going to help all the channels. I totally agree there. Yeah, that's excellent. I think that buy-in is actually one of my, for the the last topic (laughs) of SEO challenges is buy-in in general. I think think also nimbleness, like being like, if if you can't be as big, well, you better be fast, right? It's like David versus Goliath, right? Well, yeah. David yeah. certainly isn't as big as Goliath, but he's he's fast and he is figuring out how he can leverage his tools to get the get the job done. Um, we, right. we had it, like nimbleness does matter, but also trust in your teammates and, and like yeah. agreeing on the data points too. Um, so we had made this change in how we were rendering our JavaScript, and Bingbot uh, was not able to like register that. And so I was looking at crawl logs and I was looking at, um, you know, different reports and stuff like that and being like, hey, guys, there's a problem over here. Like something has changed and we're, we're, in a hard, we're going to be in trouble. And everyone, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And so this went on for like three or four months. And then finally it started hitting our bottom line and we were losing like two or three million dollars. Uh, a month off of just Bing search with everybody like, ah, Bing, it doesn't matter, but two, three million dollars matters like when you're not getting it anymore. (laughs) And so after like hitting the warning bell for three months and being like, this is the data. And they finally, you know, I had the CMO being like, what is going on here? And I had all the data and nobody else had data. So I controlled the conversation. Uh, But like we could have gotten ahead of an issue like that if we had had trust in our partners. And I feel that like when the organization gets to a certain size, everybody's protecting their number and it doesn't matter what's happening over here until everybody's hair is on fire and, you know, Rome is burning. Yeah, that is, God, it's so true. I feel like I live that like every, every day and the bigger the organization, the more red tape and the more 
people you have to go through to get the story to the right person who is the person who can make the decision that can trickle down to affect what actually needs to happen. And it's funny that you mentioned Bing. Bing is actually rarely mentioned in on this podcast, although we did make fun of it uh, five or five or six episodes back for their market share. But in in it's it's funny um, because on many, many sites, Bing doesn't represent a significant amount of traffic. But if you're working for a really, really big brand, maybe as a percentage, it's not representing a significant amount of traffic. But in terms of real sessions and revenue and things like that, that may still be significant instead of the total. So when you're making changes like moving to a JavaScript framework, like many, many businesses are because it's very trendy. Uh, and if you if you go to um, to different sites that uh, like a Google Trends and look at uh, uh, searches for different forms of JavaScript, whether it's React or Angular JS, and look at the trend over the last two years. It's it's not just up and up and right; it's up and through the roof, and and more people are moving to that. Uh, but search engines, if you're not Google, are still struggling to to catch up. Uh, especially Bing, in my experience, um, even even you know as as recently as like last year, Bing is still really bad at at crawling JavaScript. So like when those decisions happen, they're often happening away from the SEO, unless the SEO is 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 very lucky or somehow very ahead of the ahead of the game and ahead of the conversation. Um, and those things can can occur without involving the SEO and they do have major uh, major implications. Uh, and, and again, that probably comes with uh, bigger siloed organizations, uh, probably comes with the misconceptions about what SEOs do. There are probably a lot of reasons why why things happen the way they do, but they can have big impacts on the bottom line for sure. So Jason, you said, and I want to move on to the news here pretty soon, but you said some really interesting uh, things that led me to questions that I wanted to ask you. So of uh, course, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask the old, uh, the old faithful between people that have jumped back and forth, which you like better agency or in-house and why? Uh, I like agency for sure. Um, I'm wearing a beanie. I got a hoodie on every day. <laughs> like I don't have to, to get dressed up. I can look like a schlub. Um, but I mean, like the variety of stuff that we work on is awesome. Um, yeah, I was so addicted to the scale that we worked at at Hertz. And so it was really important for me to come to an agency that would offer me more scale, uh, cause I can see more data across more industries and, uh, it's just so much more fun to work at like big, big scale. Um, but like agency culture is just so different. I mean, we're a total stereotype. We have, uh, um, a brick wall that's painted, uh, we have like a barista on staff. We have like a bar with a bar tap. Like there's always something going on. There's always a client in the office. Um, you know, you can scarf food that, uh, you know, has been ordered for different meetings and stuff like that. When I was at Hertz, I actually got in trouble for stealing cookies uh, off a catering oh. cart. So um, here we have cookies just always available. So <laughs> it's, a, it's always a plus, but just the variety, the day to day. I mean, it can be exhausting uh, to constantly be shifting, um, but it, it's also highly addictive. Well, I guess my next question, I wasn't planning this, but did you demand cookies in your, in your interview? I yeah. did not, but I, I do have uh, LinkedIn endorsements for cookie eating, right. uh, as well as burritos. <laughs> so I take it pretty seriously. Sweet. 
Um, <laughs> and we have like a pretty, pretty good diversity of cookies here. Um, awesome. And yeah, it's, it's part of the culture for sure. You know, it's too bad we don't have the digital analytics power hour on this because I'm sure that they could take our cookie commentary and spin it into analytics some, some way. Yeah. <laughs> I know they would swear about it too. Yeah. So I see that PMGs, I guess, I just went onto a website and have like five locations, but three of them are all in Texas. Um, the, you're in the Fort Worth office, correct? Correct. Yep. How do, like, how do they scale? Are they all the offices somewhat same size or Austin was first. I don't know if that's because it's alphabetical, um, but like which one is the largest of the offices? Um, honestly, like one of the interesting things about working at a big agency is that um, there's constantly new people and growing and stuff. And like, I'll get uh, somebody will chat me on Slack and I have no clue who the heck they are. <laughs> um, and so like, thank goodness we have resources with like headshots and I can like look people yeah. up and understand where they're sitting, like reside and stuff like that. But it'd be pretty easy if you could like sneak in here and get yourself a computer and an email address, you could go like incognito and like steal information just cause like nobody knows who you are and just assumes that like somebody <laughs> else hired you. Um, but that, that's yeah. like kind of one of the weird things about working at a, a large agency. I think we're at like, 250 right now. Um, we're about to bring in uh, an internship class. It's like 40 people or 50 people or something. Wow, nice. Um, we have plans to keep growing. Um, the first office yeah. is open in Fort Worth and okay. that's like the headquarters and where I'm located. I think we opened the Dallas office out of like a need because uh, traffic in the area can be really, really difficult to get through. Um, mm. So, you know, to sit in an hour, hour and a half of traffic each way, the Dallas office saves the people a lot of time that live, live over in That's Dallas. Good. We also have a number of clients that are local to there. Austin is just an awesome place. Uh, yeah, I've seen clients down there too. And so they opened that office. Um, we have some like interesting outposts in New York. Um, there's like a secret underground office on the West coast kind of thing. Uh, I think like Asia is probably going to be the next big expansion. Um, I literally like we have an office in London. I literally started my day talking to, uh, Europe, and then ended my day talking to Japan. Uh, and it was there Friday, and I was still on Thursday night. So, uh, it's awesome. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I have an Australian client, and yeah, it's always fun trying to get meeting times there. And it, it all depends on daylight savings time because sometimes my afternoons or their mornings, which are great for, you know, though my it might be eight o'clock at night for me or seven o'clock and nine o'clock for them in the morning, but then other times, my early morning is their afternoon. It's just crazy how like <laughs> it, it all works, it. but, it, and, and I love it because, um, you know, I'm a little older, but growing up, like I never thought of working internationally. Now it's like not even a second thought. It's like, Hey, we're all the, and, but, and like same. the tech is totally amazing too. Like yep. you're, you're calling somebody from halfway across the world and it's a beam of light that's getting shot under on these like underground tubes that go through the ocean and stuff. <laughs> and like, Shooting all space. And you can have a conversation in real time over the course of like 6,000 miles or whatever it is that separates you. It's amazing. So cool. I mean, yep. we wouldn't even have a podcast if, if the tech did not exist to be able to communicate. Like, I don't even, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to really, to, to really talk to people. I mean, we've had people in Australia. We've had people all the way in Eastern, Eastern Europe. And the fact that there is technology now i'm i we use zoom so i have i have my complaints about zoom but honestly for like what we're trying to do it does a pretty damn good job 
for the most part, 99% of the time. And you're right. It's freaking amazing that if you think about the fact that you're literally, um, you know, like you said, shooting a light that goes under the ocean and you're talking to somebody who's in a completely different, like the other side of the world. And, and not only that, you're capturing the, the audio and, and Zoom is also doing things like transcribing it or attempting to. Right. It's quite amazing. And, and that's why to, to go down the podcast from, that's why like standing up a podcast, the barrier to entry because of all of this technology has never, ever been lower and podcasting right. is like the new form of blogging. Um, like blogging, blogging still has its place, but it is becoming a little bit of an antiquated medium because podcasting is so damn easy uh, to get your to get your message out there. And not only that, like I've speculated that um, it's not going to be long before Google is crawling full podcast episodes like they do with things in YouTube, and that stuff's going to be getting indexed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. like this whole episode and they'll index yep. a portion of the episode like midway through the episode we'll say something that lines up with something that somebody searches and google will probably figure out a way in other search engines to serve that up in in search results that's their job so i'm Agreed. sure they're working on it anyway it pretty amazing yeah so jeff why don't we move into the news sure um so i think some of the just kind of two stories that were out simultaneously well, I'll say they're simultaneously, uh, but you know, within a couple of days of each other, and and it was a lot to do about um, keyword research tools. So um, there there were two. There was one by Backlinko, um, and another one by Local SEO Guide, and, and Dan Lieben, and that. And and I, um, both of them were like, can you trust the data inside of? Um, keyword research tools. Well, Dan's article was more about B2B keywords. Um, Backlink goes was all about like they have the, the they did the largest study possible that they could have done. And uh, there was a lot of takeaways from it. And, and some of the data was a little more granular than others. But some of it, well, I'll go down the Backlinko side of things where he just compared a bunch of different tools um, and kind of compared some of the different sections. And these were some of his results that um, like Ahrefs and SEM Rush generated the highest number of keyword suggestions, um, followed by Ubersuggest, Systrix, and SE Cockpit or Search Engine Cockpit, I guess it is, um, which I've never used, something I probably want to look up. Um, and and to spare everybody from me just reading down this list, at the end of the day, it, can't, it comes down to the keyword numbers. So any type of search volume numbers and things like that. Um, were so greatly varied. Um, literally, some of them were like 70 to 80% difference. <laughs> um, but the one thing that it came down to is like the amount of suggestions. And I thought that was actually a bigger um, thing where I think Ahrefs and SEMrush have the biggest amounts. Um, Ahrefs had the biggest amount um, in there. So just to, you put in some keywords, the suggestions that come out of it were bigger. And a lot of the tools, and this is one thing that Dan's came back was a lot of the tools that rec- say like there's zero search volume, actually drive search volume for, you know, real specific clients and drive conversions. So even though like in a global scale, it's really hard to track the number of search visits someone or, or search volume that someone might be doing, um, yeah, these keywords still matter and could still drive a lot of traffic. Uh, it would be great if we you know had some keyword tools or in our analytics that would tell us that these actually worked. <laughs> um, but right now it's like, 
a lot of different numbers that are going through it. And I've always questioned that. I know um, I'm more of an SEM rush guy. Jake's more of a Ahrefs guy. And um, we fight all the time about it. No, uh, it just comes down to, to the data. And it's like, I always, I feel like SEM rush's numbers are way high. And this kind of report showed that. Um, I also felt that Ahrefs numbers were a little low and these reports show that. So I'm glad my feelings were kind of that way, but um, I mean, what kind of tools do you guys use and, and what do you feel about the numbers that are inside of those? Yeah, it felt like both articles were really, um, really good and really well, well done. I especially like yeah. um, Dan's, Dan's article and his kind of way of an, uh, analyzing the data and, and seeing how far off on kind of both, both sides in terms of both over and, and under um, kind of the data set, the data set was. And I think the thing that it emphasizes for me is that if you're relying on any single tool, um, you just have to be careful. Um, you have to be careful. And there may be a need for you to take multiple sources. Um, and for me to get away from my Ahrefs fan, fan, uh, you know, fanboyness and, and look into and take the time to utilize other tools and compare and normalize the data um, so that you're getting a more holistic picture. And I also think that it's interesting. I feel like it does tie back to like what we talked about a couple episodes ago with respect to jump shot and, and literally getting the, getting the data from a, a freaking antivirus software um, and it's just I, part of it makes me wonder where where are they getting all of their their data from? And I think one of the interesting things also that Dan brings up is that you have to assume that different sources are using different algorithms and different ways of uh, projecting the data the data forward. So yeah. it's not ever going to be apples to apples truly between these different tooling providers so like the only way to get a full picture is to use multiple tooling providers and normalize and compare compare the data and it has been my experience in the past where I saw something that was incredibly low volume uh, being reported in Ahrefs where I thought this is a really important topic for the business and we created a piece of content around that topic and literally I'm looking at the search volume and Ahrefs said like, okay, let's get 50 searches a month. Well, guess what? That, that particular um, post ended up like once it reached its potential getting like 1500 or a thousand plus visits a month, just by, just by itself. And not that that's like a huge, a huge number, but for the site that I was working on, that was a huge uh, number in terms of monthly traffic. And well, guess what? Ahrefs said it was only going to get, uh, 50 or you know, a portion of 50. So like you can't always rely on what these tools are saying. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you guys feel about it. Jason, how do you, how do you feel? Yeah. I mean, I agree. You got to source from multiple places and kind of have like a blended document. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've questioned tools in the industry for quite a long time and I'm surprised frankly that more people aren't owning their own data. Um, we all have like paid data available to us at PMG. Like we actually are, are creating like an integration team between the SEO team and the paid team. Um, but like that paid data is so juicy, whether it's like negative keyword reports, the query reports, uh, the volume, what you're actually paying per click. Um, but like always in the back of my mind is that like, what is it? 16% of all searches Google hasn't seen in a given day or in the yeah. previous like six months or something like that. Um, I might be like, 
bungling the uh, the stat a little bit. But so like, yeah, some of these keywords are going to return low naturally. And like, to your point too, with the jump shot, um, where are they sourcing their data from? And how is that getting passed through? Because your computing power of some of these searches or some of these tools aren't going to compare to the computing power that Google has. And if Google hasn't seen 60% of the searches in the previous six months, these tools aren't going to be crawling and picking that stuff up. Like right. almost by us doing the research, we're training the tools on what they need to go scrape and what they need to go uh, track. And I'll go so far as like taking some of that paid data, taking some of the keyword research data, I'll dump it in the tool like STAT, where I know that they're crawling and aggregating that data and it'll give me some like actual baselines for a month or two or a week or two if I, if I have it. Um, yeah. But I think that like going back to the jump shot thing again, um, that's like a really big learning that, A, like the tools that you use now are a reputation management issue and the tools that you use could all be coming from the same sources. And it's really imperative that we know how all these tools are earning their data. And, you know, I've talked to Jumpshot and the way that they described it to me was not how it all came out. Uh, So that was pretty interesting to me. The way that it all like shut down was pretty interesting as well. Uh, But, you know, like even in location space, I have a client that uh, we just took on that their location data passes through three companies before it goes to Google. And so there's three companies that are white gloving this service. And like, what's the value in that? Like, how is the client benefiting? Uh, uh, is it a stringent process in each one of those handoffs or is things getting dropped? Um, so like where the rubber meets the road really does matter. And it might be incremental gains, but those incremental gains mean something over the long term. Yeah. So be be skeptical, have a healthy amount of skepticism, double check and triple check your, your data uh, and do the things that are right for your clients. Even, even if maybe the search volume isn't, isn't the highest um, because that might be lowest in the funnel uh, and educate because I think clients are also like, we're trained to as SEOs to look at search volume and to have that be like a guiding uh, a guiding light, so to speak. And we then turn around and educate the clients to look at search volume. Well, maybe we need to change um, change how we're educating clients to think about it because they're also chasing search volume and money keywords and things uh, things of that nature. So I think if if anything, this just leads leads me personally to just try to be a, a little bit more skeptical and, and aware of um, what might be going on with the with the data. For sure. Yeah. Cool. And then the other thing we have in the news, uh, which is, so we, we talked to Martha uh, not too long ago, a couple episodes ago, and we really uh, talked about, you know, schema. And um, the one thing she brought up was like, it's the year of schema. And it's kind of, I always love an SEO because it's the year of everything. Like, um, but, you know, it's one of those where she said it was last year and the year before, too. So she kind of joked about her own predictions there because she's a schema company <laughs> um, that focuses all on schema. So this year is going to be the year schema. But I think there's a lot more merit to it because Google has been releasing a whole bunch of reports inside of Search Console um, I, that are just focused on, like, is your schema proper on your site? And the latest one they released, um, which the news is about, is review snippets. Um which, which is great because I, I push reviews a ton on my clients. I think user-generated content is amazing. 
but at the same time, I feel uh, like I, I do have some clients that still don't want to do reviews because they're afraid of negative reviews and, and they're afraid of, of things like that. But um, the others, just being able to track it is one thing. Like, is it implemented properly? Um, you know, tools like Screaming Frog are, are doing that now. Um, but it's always great to see, like, how Google reads your site. And, and being able to have as many of these schema things come through is, is the way I feel it. So we've had product schema. We had job posting schema breadcrumbs like these are all inside of search console but now we have review snippets um which is you know at least it gives us a, as a technical side of things to let us know that we've implemented it properly and that we are eligible to get it even though google is cutting those back from the serps right now <laughs> um where they might only show one thing with a review on it and, and not necessarily showing um everybody that has a review so, so this is the part where I get to yell because this very thing, it's actually timely that we're talking about this. This very thing just yesterday caused me personally a, a, a bit of a fire drill with one of my, one of my clients. I got, I got my pop count. I got my popcorn ready. Oh man. It, <laughs> it, and I, I won't say it. It's not Google's fault. Usually I'm like, it's Google's fault. Google, you're, you're evil. It's not Google's fault. The, the issue was this report, uh, came out and it became like fresh in the client's account uh, yesterday. And the issue, because this was a new report, it fresh in their account, they started noticing it yesterday. And to try to explain to them that, no, this issue was present before this, uh, this report came about. So this is an issue. You still have to fix it. <clears throat> Uh, and it was present before the report came about was, uh, was a little bit fun. And um, yeah, it, it was fun and obnoxious all at the, um, all at the same time. And it, and it led me personally down a rabbit hole of reviewing things like structured data validation. And it led me also to my personal hatred of bizarre voice and everything that they, that they do and stand for where, uh, and I'm sure that they stand for fine things, but in terms of the way that they execute on the SEO side, I have never had a very good experience with Bizarre Voice and their markup is almost never, never valid, which means that their customers aren't getting the full value out of the review snippet, which literally makes me want to pull my hair out anytime that I have to deal with a site that uses Bizarre Voice. And then there's the, the ed added uh, thing where they pitch they pitch themselves as helping clients get review snippets, but their markup is never clean. And then when you try to get them to fix their markup, they pretty much just stonewall you and they sell it to clients as this is going to help your SEO. And most of the time it doesn't. And then clients use Bizarre Voice because they think it's helping their SEO um, when really they should just be thinking about it as a great way to collect reviews. And Bizarre Voice does that incredibly uh, effectively in terms of how they are able to collect reviews and how you're able to put reviews on your, um, on your page. Sometimes it's just not as SEO and search friendly as I would like it to be. And I just wish that they would position um, themselves a little bit differently and get their markup uh, to a place where it's not always uh, screwed up. So that led me down a rabbit hole yesterday and, and uh, any day that I personally have to deal with bizarre voice things is not usually a, a pleasant day for me to have to report back to the client that no, your, your page and your structured data, unfortunately, through no fault of the report that just started reporting it because it's a new report, you're, it, it, it's your issue that you have to fix with your structured data because it's not valid and furthermore, 
it's not valid because you're using Bizarre Voice whose structured data is not usually fundamentally valid despite what they've told you. So usually that comes as a surprise to clients because that's the way that it's pitched and sold. Um, and when they implement it, it's a different story. And yep. that's my that's my rant about Bizarre I just looked up one, one of my clients who used Bizarre Voice and 59,000 errors. Um, yeah, 3,800 valid, 59,000 ones with errors in it. So Fake angry. I just watched uh, 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 <laughs> Thor with my kids last night and it had Hulk in it and Hulk was really funny. And anytime I hear about bizarre, bizarre voice, it's like Jake angry, Jake angry, Jake getting angry, turning into the big green SEO monster. Jake smash. <laughs> Jason, I don't know, man. What do you feel, what do you feel about that? If I think it, it's great that they're investing in the Search Console and like they've right. really been building stuff out again. Where like I get all yeah. jaded SEO about it is that since like November, have we had like five or six alerts that the data was borked and they're not going to like fix it? No, oh, yeah. And so like again, you just trust the tool. Um, and like right. I'm so so tired. Like and in, in, to your point. Uh, these automated reports, they seem to be just coming out like randomly. I, I see no consistency in it. And it just creates like false urgency behind the client, gets them all in a tizzy about stuff that like might not matter. Um, and, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm really tired of hearing that the search console data is wrong and then having to go to the client and be like, this is inaccurate and we just found out and we've been going after this for three weeks. And like Google, it's Google's game. We're always going to be playing it. And they make us look bad at just every turn, it feels like. And well, like, that's just, it's, it's tiring sometimes. Let me tell you, I, you actually brought up a, a, a couple of amazing points that triggered things in my head about how I had to respond yesterday. One of the core er errors that they were identifying, I was like, I don't know what they're talking about here. And it's, and even even better, when I went to look at their documentation to see okay, what are they talking about? What are they referring to? And it was something like um, item does not support schema or something like that. I'm paraphrasing um, and butchering it. Um, and there was literally that phrase, that particular report and issue, I searched Google, could not find anything with directly that phrase, could not find it on their, uh, on their reviews page where they document how to implement it. And I was like, I'm going to look like an idiot reporting this back to the client because it's new and they haven't updated their documentation externally to explain a little bit more about what these are or, or what this means. Um, and now I, I'm at risk of going back to the client because they triggered a report that caught the client's attention of looking like a complete idiot. And I will say I'm grateful. Like, Five years ago, this report didn't exist, right? And Search Console was a, it was Webmaster Tools, a completely different beast. So I am grateful that they're adding more reporting. I would like to see structured data and certain elements of how SEO KPIs are reported become less of a black box. And what I'd really like to see uh, more importantly are is some level of tracking uh, to show the incremental search value um, and a little bit more clarity of different kinds of structured data and just yeah. what it's doing for you on the search side. And that's still a major gray, uh, a gray area, even with schemas that do trigger rich, uh, rich snippets. I mean, they give you some data within, within search console, but it's certainly not, um, not to the level of detail that we would like. Anyways, better than nothing. 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. Um, and like, again, owning your own data, you can pull in some of this information. Uh, you know, if you know what's triggering and what's getting uh, some of these rich snippets, you can certainly correlate traffic, increases in click-through rate. You got to blend three different tools together, but um, if that's what gets you a leg up and that's going to get you like 20% gain versus your competitor, why wouldn't you go after that? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, yeah. just uh, we just have to jump through a few extra hoops right now to uh, to yeah. try to the business case. Uh, and I don't like, I'm lazy. I don't like jumping through all kinds of hoops if I don't have to. So come on, Google, help me out. Help me out. <laughs> Jeff, is that all the time? Je- Jeff, is, uh, is that it with the news? It's a bit of a slow yeah. news. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't really necessarily call it all news, but it, it was, uh, it's hot topics. We should change yeah, it from yeah, news. Most to like, the, like sometimes it's takes. news. It's somebody somebody tweeted something on Twitter that got the whole SEO Twitter world in a tizzy. Yeah. About it. Like, Dr. P we, has been uh, been pretty surly the last like week, 10 days maybe. I've been really enjoying yeah. his tweets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should change the segment to uh, hot topics and we'll just sing it like hot topics. Like Sorry, hot, pockets, hot pockets, hot yeah. pockets, you know, hot topics, and then we'll like we'll have a little theme song, and then we'll get in the. All right, sorry. That's in season three. <laughs> season three, we're gonna have hot topics. Yeah. So let's deep dive. Um, so, biggest SEO challenges. We've already talked about a bunch of challenges already, man, and uh, we like to talk about challenges here, and I think hopefully we can. Um, express kind of what our challenges and certainly our frustrations are with doing SEO day to day and just the grind. Um, But more importantly, like hopefully we can bring what we think are solutions to the bigger problems that we, you know, that we experience day to day. So I'm going to let you guys, uh, you guys go first. Uh, What one or two big challenges that you face every day as an SEO and and how do you go about addressing and fixing and making progress against that challenge? Um, I'll jump. No, Jason. Yeah. Okay, sure. Uh, I think like maybe kind of like a soft skill, but it is imperative to your, your success. Um, you know, like in my, at my role at PMG, I have to know five to 10 people on each brand that we work on. And so if we have 10, 15 brands in our portfolio at any given time, that quickly becomes over like 100 people that I have to know, uh, build relationships with. Um, And, you know, SEO is in that unique spot where we're the bridge between brand teams uh, and marketing teams and development. And so we speak the development language and can explain what it is the brand team wants implemented and how to do it. Uh, and then we have to go back and tell the brand team exactly what it is the dev team is saying and why they can't do it. Uh, and so, you know, we're that, that uh, middle communicator and, you know, having those strong dev relationships are, are imperative. Having the strong brand side relationships are imperative. Um, you know, not only when things are going well, but when things are going right to have that trust that, you know, you know, Google changed our algorithm or we're having issues with the rich snippets or something else, but we're going to fix it. We're going to get it done. And this is how we're going to get it done. Um, but I, I think that's been like the biggest uh, thing that I've really been working on uh, in the last maybe like six months uh, on the agency side, which is kind of like, I feel silly as an SEO to talk about relationships, but 
to actually get the work implemented and to get your yeah. retainer approved for the next year, you, you got to like be very, very close with the development team. Yeah. No, last week's episode we had uh, Garrett on and his, we asked him like what his advice was and it was like, learn the soft skills. Like you're going to learn yeah. SEO, but the soft skills are what people have a lot of tr- people have trouble yeah, with. That and that's the communications. Episode, by the way. That, he, oh, like, I, there was a couple of things that I reround and, and listened to over again. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean like soft skills still matter. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, coming from a developer world um, where I came from, like most developers don't have soft skills. <laughs> so, so that is something that I definitely had to learn when I, when I went into the, the role of like anything that was client facing and, and it's taken a while and still working on it all the time. Well, the crazy thing is like, you are working with people that have varying level of soft skills and varying levels of experience and communication ability. And you as the SEO, you're on the hook for results. So you have to be able to communicate with a broad audience of different types of people ranging from CEOs and CMOs, which is one type of a conversation all the way down to working with developers, which is a completely different type of conversation. And each one of those types of people have um, completely different strategies for going, not going at them, because I don't want to say you're going at them, but for getting, getting buy-in, uh, building a relationship. And I think building a relationship is incredibly important in depending on the level, building that relationship can be really hard. Um, especially if you're working, you know, with a really large brand, building a relationship with the CEO, that's going to be really difficult because you're not going to get much access to that person. So you've got to make the most out of the access that you do get with various people within the organization and hope that they can level up information to the CEO or so on and so forth. Or if you're in-house and you're literally able to lean over the developer's shoulder, which I've had situations like that, and that's great. Well, you got to know how to relate to that person and talk to them and, and understand how to explain things. And even more importantly, get them to respect you. Um, because, it, because Especially with developers, like they're not going to help you out if they think you're, a, you're a, uh, an idiot right? If they think that, if they think about yeah. you, what people traditionally think about SEOs, they're going to say, honestly, and I don't want to like, I know we drop swear words on this, so I'm, I'm trying to avoid it, but I'm not, but they're going to think you're a giant fuckwad and they're going to say, fuck that guy. We're not implementing his, his yeah. stuff because he doesn't yeah. know what you're talking about. So yeah. you've got to earn their respect and there are a lot of different ways to, um, to, to do that. And that comes through those soft skills. It comes through things like showing empathy, building a real friendship, people work five times or 10 times or whatever it is a lot harder when the people that you're working with are your friends, right? Than people that are just your colleagues or just somebody that's giving you an order or saying, do this or do that. Like if you can really build, um, uh, you know, some sort of a, some sort of a relationship and a friendship with people, they're going to work a lot harder for, for sure. you. Through those for sure. Yeah. And like, you know, I believe a lot in uh, Kaizen and and like that, that theory of always trying to improve and get better and like asking developers like for feedback uh, can be super impactful. Like, did I deliver that document in an okay way? Like, how would you rather receive it? Um, You know, did that meeting go okay? Like, how could I be representing you better? Or, um, you know, like really making sure that you are asking them for feedback is, is a key component to, 
you know, developing that, that strong relationship um, and bond and like going out of your way to highlight the good work that they're doing too, or how they're helping and, um, you know, making sure that they're understanding the role and the success, uh, making sure that they're included in that success. Yeah. Showing them the data of when they, because a lot of times like the develop, like, and we're diving into developers and there's all kinds of other relationships that you have to, that you have to be able to build. Like you said, you're building, uh, you know, relationships with three people across 10, you know, 10 teams or four people, you know, across different teams. So you got to be able to talk to different people, but like, you have to know when somebody's in the bunker day to day and they're kind of doing the work, they're on the execution side and they don't often get a chance to poke their head out and either get recognized, get rewarded or see the fruits of their labor because they're just, they're working to, to ship something. And then tomorrow they're working to ship something else and to ship something else. Uh, and they're focused very, uh, very granularly. And it's, it's been incredibly effective for me to say, to come back a month later and say, hey guys, remember that schema change or that technical change or the speed change or whatever? Look what it's doing to results. Like it's working. It's working. We need to keep doing this. Uh, great job, guys. Um, it, it's really beneficial to bring it full circle with them and let let folks know that their hard work is not um, is not without reward, for sure. You're always marketing something. Always. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> right. So Jeff, what are some of your biggest challenges? I think a lot of times, especially on a, someone that's a new client, right, is setting expectations um, versus like the reality of what they, what they what's going to happen, right? Because I've a lot of new accounts come in and it depends on how they're sold, right? If, if we're part of the sales process, great. Like we, we can kind of set expectations up front. Um, I think as agencies get larger and bigger and cross-selling happens, um, sometimes like the, the teams don't have the same expectations set to, uh, or if they, if we crushed it in like paid search and then they bring SEO in and they're like, wow, we can fix this all in a month and a half. Uh, like be able to, it's not what's really going to happen, right? So we want to be able to set the expectations and like when we develop out our plan, um, a lot of the expectations, right? And I think we sell SEO and everyone, if, you, if you've done paid search, then it's like, okay, the paid search team runs back and does everything themselves. And next thing you know, you got more traffic. SEO, it's like, I come to them with, here's 30 things we want to do. Um, can we get your you know, development team or content team involved in any of this? Um, and now it's like, they have to actually do work. So sometimes they're paying us to tell them they have to do more work. <laughs> um, and, and they don't expect that. So setting that expectation to like, this is what it's going to be. These are the kind of the realities. This is how long it's going to take to see results. Um, and sometimes, you know, not everything's a winner, right? So it's like, we might be fixing um, all your schema, but we might not actually see a big jump in traffic it's like a lot of little things that we're going to add up and that's when we'll start seeing it um so that that's kind of where i feel we i I could do a way better job explaining that to my clients all the time um and and getting through it that way but i feel like that's a big challenge because people again are paying money you know whether it's monthly or yearly or however your retainer schedules work or stuff like that and they they want to see roi as quick as possible and seo is usually not the quickest but can be the longest lasting. And some of these shifts can be so impactful to somebody's yeah. business. Um, you know, like I remember when Penguin first came out, uh, we inherited a bunch of new clients at Dragon Search, and um, like it was people had second mortgages out on their house to run their business and keep it afloat. And 
yeah, they yeah. bought links and it, that was what was recommended to them. And like, now they're like sweating it out, trying to make payroll and keep, keep business going. And it relies on you. Um, and you know, you might be doing everything you can do to, to try to save it, but, uh, it still might not be yeah. savable based on what they did. And so like, it, it does depend. There's, there's people that have like real skin in the game and you, it does take empathy, um, yeah. you know, to understand where that stress is coming from. How often do you guys feel like expectations versus reality is in line when it comes to running and doing and going through the process of an SEO campaign? Um, I mean, with us, I, I'm always preaching to, to tie everything to business value. Uh, what's the, how many dollars do we make? How many visits do we, what, what's the goal that we're trying to achieve with the client? And it's, it's got to go back to that business impact. Um, and so I think that that over the course of time, you know, when we're auditing and starting off with a client, um, we'll set, you know, roadmap and action plan put in place. And then we'll also recommend a set of KPIs, which gives us the ability to project and to understand that return. And I think that that's a key part because the client can then understand what they're actually going to get or what we're trying to achieve. Um, we run these things sometimes called bowlers, which like map out all the different uh, metrics that we're chasing and show the mix and it gives us reach goals. And we might not always hit those reach goals, but it shows the client that we're trying. And when we do hit it, we look awesome. Um, but, it, you know, tying it back to actual data and metrics, I think really enables you to control the dialogue and also set those expectations. So, so let me play devil's advocate. What, what do you do when you're working with a client whose data, we work with clients who have really clean data and really clear ways of tracking things through their system. And we work with clients that have not figured that out and aren't close. What do you do when you've got a client that is pursuing SEO, but who's not close on the measurement side in terms of proving out value? Um, so we also believe in progressions and we want to identify where the client is in any given set. So if we're looking at like technical SEO, uh, do they have basic data set up? Do we have Google search console in place? Um, if we don't have Google search console in place, going right to server logs might not be the most impactful thing for them. Um, and so, you know, if you have basic tracking, uh, we just I signed a new client that doesn't have conversion tracking put in place. And so it's part of that transparency and education. We're going to set some baselines. We're going to get the conversion tracking going. We'll get some event tracking going. And it's part of that story, but you're also leveling them up at each, each step of the way. Um, and like I talked about cycling early on, I find like a lot of parallels between um, my competitive life and my uh, SEO life. SEO life's as competitive as cycling probably, not more. Uh, but you know, like you start with what's that a race? What's the goal that you're trying to achieve? Or you want to have like the best national race that you've ever had. And you're backfilling that and all the training that you need to do and understanding what the strengths and the weaknesses are and what strengths do you need to be training over the course of these months that you're building up your fitness to achieve this a race. And I think it's exactly the same with the client. Like what goal do you guys want to achieve next year that we all look back and say, this was a highly successful year okay, well, if that's the goal that we're chasing, these are all the things that we need to do to achieve those goals. And these are all the metrics that we're going to be tracking. Um, I, you know, like, I think that it, you always have to start with a goal and then you can inform them with all the big rocks that you're going to be dropping along the way. 
Yeah, and, and I think uh, also another, and it's funny that we talked about soft skills right before talking about this, when you're in a situation where your client is is doing SEO or doing paid or any other type of marketing, but they don't have their kind of analytics stack figured out and have no way of really giving you viable data that you can track all the way through the system, it becomes really, really important to develop trust and to make sure that they trust that the opinions that you're giving them are helping them grow the business, even if they can't prove it. Um, and that is, that is an incredible, an, an incredible skill. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it, it doesn't, but when you're working with clients who aren't good at tracking things yet, um, they have to trust you. They, they do. They have to trust you. They've got to feel like you're helping their business. You have their best interest at heart. Uh, and I hope you do. Um, and that you're not just chasing your, your own goals. Uh, you have to show them that you're flexible, um, that, I mean, because no SEO wants to operate in a system where there's no data to ultimately prove their value. That's a really hard place to be, but we're there sometimes. So like you've, <laughs> if you're not developing trust and if you're not showing them that you're having a, a certain amount of flexibility to operate in, in an environment where things aren't ideal, you're not going to, um, not going to succeed. So one more thing, I'll do mine, uh, my biggest challenge. I always say it's um, implementation, and I'm, I'm just going to say that here. Implementation, I think, especially on the agency side, um, is one of the most difficult challenges that we face. Like, we're often put in, in, in a situation where we're running a, short, a shorter-term contract. And by shorter term, I mean six months, 12 months, and you have that finite window to drive results. And there are times where you're coming in fresh and you have to audit and kind of get the lay of the land with a particular client, find all their issues and put it together into a coherent strategy. And that takes time. And then not only that, but you've got to work with a client to, if you want to do technical things, well, guess what? You're the, the client probably already has a technical team working on their website who probably already has a roadmap and you got to try to figure out ways, where can I fit in that roadmap and how soon so that they can see the impact. Um, it, it's incredibly difficult. I've worked with clients where 10 months out of the, out of the 12 of our contract, we're in a code freeze and like, you've got to be really efficient in those two months. Um, and you've got to, and honestly, I think, uh, transparency is really important in letting them know, um, when they're, they're kind of letting you down. So to, so to speak and, making it very clear that, hey guys, it's really hard to be successful if you don't implement our recommendations and you're paying us a lot of money and making sure that they know because some, sometimes um, sometimes we're really focused on proving the, the ROI and we have to do that. That's kind of what we're on the hook for and we want to make sure that if a, if a client is spending money with us that we're like giving them the value but on the other side, there are times where clients are asking things of you and, and sometimes lacking, uh, sometimes they have the self-awareness to realize that they're putting you in a bad position and sometimes they don't. And when they don't, um, you've really got to be, um, I don't know, pretty upfront and pretty transparent and honest about those types of situations. Now, when you're, when you're in a good situation, um, I would say the best way to facilitate implementation is to make it as easy as possible. Uh, don't leave any guesswork. If you have to put together a technical recommendation, like hand them the specs, hand them the, uh, don't expect them to build the car 
hand them the freaking keys, right? And just make it really easy. Make it really easy. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, do the extra legwork and make it easy for them to say, yes, this is easy. We're going to implement it right away. Offer to do it. I know a lot of clients uh, will restrict access to things like their content management system. But if you have uh, an opportunity where you're like, hey, we need to build internal links and the client's like, yes, I agree, but I don't have time. Okay, maybe give, give me access to the CMS and guess what? I'll be an extra set of hands. I'll go build those. It'll take me a week. We'll get it done. Um, if, a, if a client sees that you're willing to go that extra mile or if an internal team sees that you're willing to help out and be an extra set of hands, um, that goes a long way towards the relationship building that we talked about at the, at the beginning. And if you're making your clients' lives easier, you're going to get stuff implemented and it's ultimately going to be a, be a win for you. So my advice is make their life easy. Make their life easy. Don't give them the instruction manual to build the car, build the freaking car for them and give them the keys. So as much as you can. So Jason, one last question we like to, we like to ask um, before we, before we sign off is imagine that somebody is starting literally today. It's 2020. They're fresh out of college or they're fresh off a, a, a job that they hate and they're looking for a new career and SEO is that career. Um, what advice would you give somebody who's starting in the industry literally today? Read, read all the things. Uh, I think that the hunger to learn is better than knowing how to actually do SEO. Um, you know, like that, that ability to just consume content constantly and be inquisitive pays off more than anything else. Um, you know, look at source code. You don't, you don't know what it says or don't understand it. Start doing it. Uh, you know, like don't, don't put it off. Don't, um, you know, wait to, to build some of those skills. Uh, and it, it pays off in, in real life too. Um, over the holidays, I bought my wife these crazy uh, Japanese knives and they were like, $1,300, but because I read the source code, I found where they commented out the discount code that got me these knives for $300. <laughs> and nice. they actually emailed me asking me how I got the discount. And so like I had to point it out, but you know, like I read source code all the time because it saves me a thousand dollars occasionally. <laughs> and so I think that like awesome. that ability to learn and wanting to be inquisitive and understand why something works or why something is the way that it is on a website um, it pays off and that's how you build your skill set more than, more than anything else. Great advice. So Jason, where can people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter, Sunray, S O N R A Y. Uh, also LinkedIn. Uh, you can search for Jason white. There's a couple of us. I was a, a rodeo star for a short amount of time. I raced NASCAR. <laughs> I won the Heisman when I went to Oklahoma state. Um, I've also nice. been a bassist in green Bay. So, um, I'm kind of like, a difficult SEO to find, which is probably a bad thing. To <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about Sunray. I was wondering if your dad's name was Ray, maybe, but no. Um, so he actually started this business called Sunray Mobility Services, uh, and uh, I worked for him. So it was a bit of play on words. Um, you know, he named it that way because he was bringing sunshine into people's lives who were, um, you know, disabled or stuck at home and stuff like that. And I didn't have a better idea when it was asking me for a username, and um, I've had it for so long that. Why am I going to change Sunray? Yeah, Sunray. Bringing, bringing sunshine into people's lives through Twitter. All right. Well, Jason, it was awesome to, uh, to have you on. As always, an amazing, amazing conversation. And uh, 
yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. I really being, appreciate being part of your story. I mean, like amazing guests so far. The next 10 that you have are incredible too. Yes. Um, so yeah. it, it's an honor to be here and I really had a great time talking with you guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Page 2 Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the show or listen to more episodes, visit us at page2podcast.fm. That's page, the number two, podcast.fm. Our episodes are also available on a number of other platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Deezer, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. Additionally, you can also listen to our show on our new YouTube channel. If you'd like to become a sponsor or would like to be interviewed, get in touch with us at thepage2podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, happy optimizing.